0: Okay, by way of review, (laughs) what we did uh, last time, we uh, looked at the thousand year period that is mentioned only in Revelation uh, 20. And we saw that before the thousand years, Satan is bound, and that coincides with the first resurrection. And then after the thousand years, Satan is released. And that coincides with the second resurrection. And the book of Revelation, chapter 20, makes very clear that the resurrection one wants to be part of is the first one. Blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection. Over them the second death has no power. So, by way of summary still, then we say that the second coming occurs before the thousand years. The earth is desolate during the thousand years. And there is a new earth after the thousand years. That's the sort of uh, (coughs) lay of the land that we uh, tried to outline. And there are other paradigms, as we did last time. We showed that this is not a a universally held view. In fact, (coughs) the notion that the earth is desolate during the thousand years, that the earth is a wasteland during the thousand years, is precisely not the view that is held by just about all the models, pre-millennial, a post-millennial. Uh, this is a distinctive view that we uh, outlined last time. Now, here is what we will do today. We will go in search of the, for the logic, uh, of, of the logic, I should say, in search of the logic for Satan's release. Now, if forceful action can be taken, why was it not done earlier? And why must... Satan be released with the emphasis on necessity there. That's our, our main question today. Let's read the text here in Revelation 7:20 verses 7 through 9a. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And then just to uh, do a throwback here uh, that the release of Satan, Satan's release coincides Uh, with the second resurrection. So there is a sort of circumstantial reality uh, or a circumstance that coincides with his release. In fact, the circumstance could very well be his release. And we hinted as much last time. Uh, Revelation 25 says that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And that's exactly when Satan is, quotes, released. Uh, So uh, let's keep that in mind. And then here is just doing in slow motion what we have read now in the passage in Revelation uh, 20, verses 7 through 9, 9a. Satan will be released from his prison after the thousand years. He will go forth to deceive the nations. One more time. He will gather the nations for war. That's what our text was saying. Uh, Gog and Magog is a... Metaphor for this final eschatological battle and the the background, the Old Testament background for Gog and Magog is in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and very much worth reading. And then, uh, seeing this, uh, the shape of the eschatological uh, battle, uh, we see that they are many, as numerous as the sands of the sea. And they are confident because they are marching up over the breadth of the earth, and surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. All of those things we have seen in that passage, in that sort of uh, quite dense passage, that supposedly was written by a C student. Uh, if you remember R. H. Charles, who says that the uh, that. Uh, the author of the book of Revelation must have died in the early part of uh, chapter 20 and left, it, left his, uh, his notes, his lecture notes, to uh, some uh, not so bright student who put it together. But we disagreed with that. We think this, that, he d- <coughs> that there is no evidence that he died and that this is very much something coming from our author's own hand. And there is uh, plenty of, of uh, tantalizing features in the text to to wish us to engage it so <coughs> we are now at the end of the cosmic conflict aren't we uh, the beginning of the cosmic conflict was like this <coughs> revelation 127 and war polemos broke out in heaven michael and his angels had to war had to fight but i'm using the uh, consistent uh, form here the verb and the noun just to keep us on the same, use the same type of terminology that our Greek text is using. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels had to war against the dragon. That was the beginning. And then here is the beginning of the end. 12.17 Then the dragon went off to make war on the remnant of her seed. And then now... This must be the end and I think you could say in some ways it's not absolutely the end but it's the end of the cosmic conflict Satan will gather them for war one final time after the thousand years that's that's our our uh, sort of summary summary portrayal of the of the cosmic conflict Now to the rereader just to just to say, you know, where is this battle taking place? Because they are going up here. We saw that they are going up uh, to do what? What's what's the sort of focus of the battle? Where where are they gathered? What's the what's the what's the object of the battle? Well, they're going to take a city. There is a city there that they want to they want to take. You know, the the forces on the opposing side are marching up to take that city. And what is the city? And I. I think we have done some work on this before, so I will not do the whole the whole thing over uh, on this one. But I will just say that for this question, it helps to be a re-reader of the Book of Revelation. This is where re-readership comes in, uh, very handy. And I uh, have then uh, put the texts uh, of, of uh, the, to identify the city in the in the reverse order of how they appear in the text in Revelation. Uh, so here it is, the rereader and the beloved city in Revelation 20. We do not have a full picture of this city till Revelation 21. The Re- uh, early on in Revelation, it does say, talk about the city, but the, the city has not been defined for us till Revelation 21 too. Where John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But this is the city in Revelation 20, verse 9. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And uh, uh, My point here then is that the beloved city here is the new Jerusalem. And then just to go one step even further back in the story of revelation uh, the wine press was trodden outside the city and again this is already in revelation 14:20 you have a a preview as it were of the final eschatological battle uh, told there when the harvest is ripe at the end of history the harvest is ripe and the grapes are thrown outside the city and the wine press is trodden outside the city. But we have done some of this here before, so I do not want to, to just start from scratch again. I'm hoping that at least some of you have connected the dots here. Let me just try to review it in sort of broad, broad strokes, if I, if I can do that. Uh, let's say... Let's say that we have the seven seals. We have the seven seals, and what, what, where do the seven seals end? Where do the, what's the ending of the seven seals? The sixth seal, what happens in the sixth seal? Now you see, we need to do more re-readership here, <laughs> even though we've been working on it. The sixth seal is the cosmic dissolution And what seems like the second coming. So there is cosmic dissolution, and there seems, you know, there is a cry out there to hide us from the wrath of Him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That's in the seal sequence, and then in the what's the seventh seal. The seventh seal is, in my view, the whole end game already very early in revelation the The final state of affairs in this, this book is being, picked, uh, being depicted in uh, revelation the seventh seal revelation eight one when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, so silence in heaven in heaven, and and, uh, we have talked about that too, but we will return to it uh, with time. So there is a sort of, uh, anyway, the seventh seal seems to depict not just a portion of history, but in some ways the full width of history, in some ways the whole thing. So uh, there is a sort of, you come to the very end already in the seventh seal, in the final sort of eschatological scene, so now we do the trumpets, and I do it. In you know, we could do align them differently, but uh, the seven trumpets. Now, uh, what's the what's the last uh, uh, of the seven trumpets? What happens in the last of the seven trumpets? The seven trumpet blew. And there is an announcement early on that you really should be, on your, should be on the lookout for the seventh trumpet because when the seventh trumpet sounds, when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, then what? Yes, Brad? Okay, so there is a scene of healing here too. Uh, exactly that's very helpful actually so in the in the in the uh, sort of a so there is a completion it's kind of a completed picture isn't it 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 prefigures the ending so he will wipe every tear from their eyes and 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 the notion that death will be no more is kind of implied there already so silence in heaven scene of healing and then uh the seventh trumpet, there is a prefiguring of what will happen. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, then what? The mystery of God will be complete. Will, then you will have had a full disclosure of the mystery of God. So, uh, and then the seventh angel blows his trumpet, and what happens when the seventh angel blows his trumpet? then heaven is opened and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple and there was you know a, a earthquakes and rumblings and all kinds of things that are signifiers of re- revelation those those uh, the choreography the earthquakes the fire and the rumbling the choreography of that are signifiers of revelation you might say so in the, uh, so trumpets here too it's sort of uh, you come to the end, as it were. So I'm, I'm just saying that while these sequences may not in every sense be aligned, you know, in here, they seem to be aligned at the very end, and they seem to line up, they seem to all take us till the very end of the story. That's what I'm saying. Now, similar thing, uh, it, it, you have to qualify it somewhat, but... But uh, just in broad broad stroke, the strokes, the seven bowls. Well, many people would like to make them more eschatological. They would make, like to make the seven bowls begin at a sort of later point. So, so by all means, let's do that. Let's accommodate that wish. Uh, but where does it end? The seven bowls. Where does the seven bowls end? You know, to be to to be pr- uh, more exact. Because at the end of the seven bowls, there is a sort of, uh, it is done. Somebody, a voice announces, it is done. So now it must be done then. So it's kind of over. <coughs> but it isn't really over. Because the, after the seven bowls, there is a narration. With a, there is a guided tour where one of the seven bowl angels, one of the seven bowl angels first does a guided tour of what? He gives you a guided tour of the fall of Babylon. And then another angel, same or maybe the same person, one of the bowl angels then gives you a guided tour of what of the New Jerusalem. So, so you have, you have uh, the bowls. here is the end of Babylon, end of the opposing city. and the victory of the of Jerusalem you might say now so and <coughs> which Jerusalem would that be you know well <coughs> is it, a, is, it a, is it a Jerusalem in some sense of an earthly reality you know uh, that could not be ruled out but <coughs> to the extent that there is such a such a striking eschatological orientation such as striking interest in the ending. Like Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza says, that the book of Revelation is not encyclopedic. It doesn't tell you everything. It is end-oriented. It prioritizes what happens at the, at the end, how things end. So it does, and I think the Seventh-day Adventist paradigm has been much more in the sort of encyclopedic paradigm that you want to detail everything in history and you are maybe more interested in historical detail than, than you are at, in the ending. The book of Revelation is more interested in the ending and uh, sort of focuses this so you can see there is a sort of broadening of the ending. And this becomes particularly striking in the seven bowls when it seems to end in Revelation 16. There is an announcement. Sixteen eighteen says it is done, and then you begin in seventeen one, and it says one of the bowl angels said, "I will show you," and then he details the story of the ending, and then bowl an- angel again telling us the story of the new Jerusalem. <coughs> so, so it would take a little more work than this to 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 prove, and maybe it is beyond proving that it is. The New Jerusalem, that is being, that is the the, the city they are marching up against, but uh, <coughs> but uh, that would be, be, be certainly uh, <coughs> my bias, and and maybe we could revisit some of the. You could revisit the handouts when we did some of this work. Uh, it would be the ending of Revelation 14 when I did uh, try to do some of this work and showing uh, how. How uh, the re-reader, because in Revelation 14, the wine press was trodden outside the city. You cannot know in Revelation 14 which city that was. You need the rest of the book to know which city it is. That's, that was our point then. And the rest of the book points uh, in, in that direction. Again, let me just repeat. The ending of the seals, seven seals, and I think... Here is what I would like to suggest and then try to return to it when we come to the very end of our of our course here. I think, and I, I, I'm sorry to say it now, but uh, well, let me just say it. I think that the half an hour of silence is the ending of the story. The, the last vision in Revelation is that silence in heaven for half an hour. That in some sense, the seventh seal is even further toward the ending than the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. It sort of takes you to the bottom line of this book, and I will uh, return to that and have something to say about it when we get, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> add things up in the end, that there is a reason for that silence. And, and uh, uh, well, there is. Let's <coughs> not say more. And the other sequences, the seal sequence, trumpet sequence, bowl sequences, they all align at the point of the ending, because that is the main interest in the book of Revelation. It is end-oriented more than encyclopedic. That, I think, has has been said very well, and let's go on now. Now, the Old Testament background (coughs) for this eschatological battle, we said, is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 14 and 16. I, I will read a couple of these passages just to get us <coughs> to sort of feel, uh, feel some of it, and then we will prioritize one of the verses in Ezekiel 38 above the rest of it. Therefore, mortal, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, You will rouse yourself and come from your place. Gog, the enemy of the people of Israel. You will rouse yourself and come from your place out of the remotest parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses. It's very interesting, the horses, because Revelation will pick up on the imagery of the horses and say what in Revelation 14? That the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from... You know the wine press, up to what? This is one of the most bizarre images in the whole book of Revelation. I I presented a paper on this at at Society of Biblical Literature uh, some years ago, and uh, that I had called uh, "Blood Through the Bridles of the Horses: The Devil Is in the Details" was my was my title and and here are horses you know in the, in this uh, uh, final eschatological battle blood fro- flowed uh, the wine press uh, was thrown outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as the <coughs> bridles of the horses as deep as the bridles of the horses for a distance of 200 miles you know this is a lot of blood you know this is this is just a sort of eschatological sort of apocalyptic imagery of course (coughs) so anyway you and many people with you all of them riding on horses that the opposing army a great horde a mighty army you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the earth lots and lots of people a huge army In the latter days I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, through the very enemy, I display my holiness before their eyes. Reading on. On that day, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, my wrath shall be aroused. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all human beings that are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. Do you have a sense that Revelation is aware of this kind of thing, that Revelation has already been, been sort of at it, in, uh, in the, uh, already, uh, in fact, in the seal sequence, where there is a sort of cosmic dissolution there then when, the, when, uh, when uh, stars fall to the ground and, and the whole cosmos seems to come un- unglued, as it were, uh, already there in the sixth uh, uh, seal. And then there is this verse here, and and we will discuss this. I will summon the sword against Gog in all my mountains, says the Lord God. The swords of all will be against their comrades. Now, what was that? What was that? Who is fighting them? Who is fighting them? Self-destruction. Who is fighting this? Time out. What is happening in the ranks of Gog? So all this amazing imagery, this imagery of power, sort of. So this army come up and it is like a cloud covering the mountains, you know, such such a crowd. And then what is happening here? Such perception on the part of the prophetic witness. Such perception, you know, seeing what is happening here, that they are turning on themselves. It's sort of this is an army. So this, does, it, does it need to be explained? The swords of all will be against their comrades. This is dissolution within the ranks of Gog, isn't it? You know, that there is something. Something must have happened. What happened to make them do that? So, what was it? What sort of, what, what happened with such, with an army with such determination to do it? To such, with such, such resources with which to do it? And suddenly this army is sort of seeming to come unglued. The swords of all will be against their comrades. Well, We'll do the math. (laughs) With pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him and I will pour down torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur upon him and his troops and the many peoples that are with him. So I will display my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So all this imagery, God sort of ranged against this army but you know, as we ponder the, the demise of the opposing army, surely the most telling detail, surely the most con- counterintuitive detail of this ending of the battle must be that they turn on each other what is it what sort of reality is it that makes that happen what what happened uh, and our uh, vision doesn't really tell us that or maybe it thinks that we are supposed to know it and and there are certain things that the bible doesn't tell us because it thinks that by now surely the reader ought to understand it <coughs> any comments here i don't uh, i'm going to <coughs> to to uh, uh, sort of run through this like a bulldozer uh, and then and then uh, we'll do do the uh, the sort of reflections afterwards but let's have a few few comments here yes yes the the ezekiel vision is not singular it doesn't stand alone it is it is just one more one more telling image of self-destruction in the ranks of the oppo- on the opposing side and and we will do some some uh, adding up of that but surely this is consistent uh, there is a there is not that much quality writing on on this subject uh, uh, i gave you one uh, one reference last time uh, by Jeb Web, J. Webb Mealy uh, after the thousand years resurrection and judgment in Revelation 20 this is a monograph it, it's, you know these monographs are not easy, easy reading but I think this is quite a competent reading and then there is a Norwegian uh, scholar by the name of Sverre Boe uh, Sverre Boe like this and he has written a monograph, a, docu- a PhD monograph that I have referenced. I think I have it in, in one of your slides, uh, where he uh, uh, writes on Gog and Magog. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see, Magog, uh, and so on. Uh, he uh, looks at how Ezekiel uh, is uh, echoed in Revelation 20. Uh, and he talks about Gog and Magog in Revelation 19 and 20. Those key texts where where the eschatological battle are, uh, is uh, is featured. And uh,
1: <coughs> I think he has
0: written a very competent uh, competent dissertation. And he has just written a, a, a small little book on the Book of Revelation uh, for uh, lay readers. Unfortunately, it's only in Norwegian. It it has a very a very uh, uh, strong tincture of of uh, traditional Lutheran uh, thought in it. But I like it. I think he's done a very, a very nice job. He has really harnessed the best of his tradition and done a very appealing reading of the book of Revelation. I, I hope to meet him. I've never met him, but I, I have sent him a greeting through another person who knows him. And and I just wanted to commend him for a, for a very fine fine piece of work. Okay, the cosmic conflict is now over in Revelation 20, verse 9b. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So what was the picture prior to this? We have this immense army from Gog and Magog marching up over, uh, and surrounding the holy city. And, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them, our text says. And there is a verse 10 here too. And the devil... Uh, who had deceived them, back to uh, what Ed's point is, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. That was the ending of Revelation 19. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now here in Revelation 20.10, and you have been all sensitized to the difference between the active and the passive uh, voice in, 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 uh, in language. What, <coughs> in the uh, passive voice, what's the problem in the passive voice? It anonymizes the acting subject. Now is verse 10 here in the passive or the active voice? The devil was thrown. Is that active voice or passive voice? It's passive voice. What's the? Who is the acting subject? Well, you think you know. Are you sure you know? Anyway, <coughs> it's not in the active voice. If we were to revert it into the active voice, we would have a sentence uh, uh, saying, who threw him into the lake of fire? Who did that? You know, and uh, I am just wishing you to put your brakes on and and not think that that is a foregone conclusion. Question. How does Satan come to an end in uh, the final cosmic battle? And another question. Is Satan destroyed by fire from without? That's uh, stating our questions bluntly and to the point. Now, why should we even ask the question we're we're going to do a little reflection on on the uh, and a, and a uh, critique and you can do a savage critique of of this paradigm but i would like to present the paradigm and then you we'll do our critique and we will do one more session on revelation 20 uh, mostly on the remainder that we will not have time to do today but we will uh, look back on on, on what we have done today, too. I just want to ask this audience, why should we even bother to ask the question? Well, here is one possibility, just a crude reason for doing it. We read, we read at the beginning of Revelation 20 that an angel came down from heaven with a big chain. And, and these sentences were in the active voice, not in the passive voice. No, no anonymity as to who the acting subject is. An angel came down from heaven with a uh, chain and he and then he did what? He seized and he bound and he threw and he locked and he sealed all strong sort of strong very very uh, great uh, active uh, verbs uh, and then what did we do with that? Well, we tamed them. We tamed those active uh, verbs and I and I think on this point I think there are flaws, there are places where where the usual Adventist interpretation needs to to improve. Uh, and and uh, in some ways I think it needs to have, you know, do do significantly more uh, exegetical footwork, <coughs> but I I tend to agree with this one, that all this powerful activity, this powerful intervention, that it is only that it is symbolizing something that happens, uh, uh, sort of the, 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 the reality to which this points is Satan being bound by circumstances, that the saved people, as it were, have been uh, evacuated from the earth, and now. What is left is nothing, that the earth is a wasteland. And only when the second resurrection happens, after the thousand years, uh, when there is the second resurrection, the resurrection that is no good, it doesn't do us any good, well, it has a sort of revealing purpose too. Uh, But it is not a resurrection that is really redemptive. That we should ask the question, When the text says that fire came down from heaven, and let us say that fire came down from God, from heaven, from God, uh, we should ask the question, is that also symbolic of something other than what the text seems to say? Because we have already put ourselves into the hole by saying that seized and bound and sealed and locked and through was symbolic of something other than just a literal action. You know, Maybe there was no angel, maybe there is no chain, maybe there is no key, maybe there is no throwing and sealing and locking, maybe there is just the action of circumstances upon the losing side in the cosmic conflict. That's what we did. Now, we who have done that, who have made that very radical move to do that, why are we suddenly moving back from that radical move and saying, now fire comes down from heaven and it's all literal? You know, now this is the real thing. It is just, now God is acting and he's acting through fire. I'm just asking. I'm asking not because I think this is the best argument. I don't think it is the best argument. But I'm asking for the sake of consistency only. You know, if you do it that way in that text, why don't you do it in the other text too? You see what I'm trying to say? Consistency is our argument here. Now... Brad has already mentioned this text but let's uh, <coughs> let me mention it again. Now <coughs> who is doing who is doing destruction here because there is destruction at the end who who are sort of pitching in to do destruction in the in the storyline of revelation and here in the trumpet sequence there is destruction and the agent of destruction is identified unambiguously. There is a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, which is an allusion to Isaiah 14 uh, and that key passage in, in the Old Testament for the cosmic conflict theme. A star had fallen from heaven to earth, and this star... This uh, figure is named, is identified as the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. And now in English he is called what? The destroyer. The destroyer. The destroyer is just the noun. For the verbal action attributed to this figure in the po- poem in Isaiah, in Isaiah, in Isaiah, the action attributed to him is that he has destroyed the earth. He has destroyed his people, his land, and his people. And the action attributed to these phenomena in the trumpet sequence is to fill the uh, to fill the earth <coughs> with fire and smoke and su- sulfur. I will call that destruction from below. There is destruction from below uh, in, in the uh, storyline in Revelation uh, as, uh, as exemplified here. And of course this, I, this intensifies in the bowl sequence and so I will say that the trumpet and the bowl sequences are both In some ways, showing destruction from below. But it is very explicit here in the trumpet sequence. Now, is there destruction in the bowl sequence separate from this one? And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, are these sentences in the active or in the passive voice? These sentences are in the active voice, which is uncharacteristic of revelation. So what is the advantage of the active voice over the passive voice? Now Now you can re- write a grammar after this. <coughs> you can write a dissertation <laughs> on the difference. What is the difference? What's the advantage of the active voice? that you know who is doing it. You know who is the acting subject and who is doing uh, what is happening here. There is destruction. There is dissolution on the side of the opposing side, isn't there? And someone on the opposing side in the cosmic conflict is doing the destruction. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. I'm just saying... That there is a so uh, what should we say from within here should we say from within destruction from within from from inside from inside uh, sort of ins- from within or inside the the ranks of the opposing side in the co- conflict? you can <coughs> improve on that. I will try to improve on it too. And then there is destruction in the Old Testament antecedent for the cosmic battle uh, in the text that we have read. And here is your reference for uh, <coughs> Sarah Buss, uh, 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 monograph. I will summon the sword against Gog in all my mountains, says the Lord God. The swords of all will be against their comrades. So this is again uh, destruction from within, seeing, <coughs> seeing the within as a body, as a sort of uh, as, a, as a group, as a force, and then <coughs> there is destruction coming. Now we're coming much closer to the to the real acting subject here, to the real sort of force behind it. And let's look at it this way: What the, Ezekiel twenty-eight talks about? What there are two key passages for the cosmic conflict theme in the Old Testament. They are closely related. They are amazing compositions. The most important is Isaiah 14, 12 to 20. This poem has been said to be the most carefully composed poem of any poem in the Old Testament. It has uh, uh, spectacular spectacular literary qualities. That's the first text, and that's the text of the shining star. The shining star shining one the best translation of of uh, the halael ben shahar <coughs> that's the title of the f- uh, of this figure in hebrew ben Helal ben shahar the best translation for that is the shining one uh, in english it was translated lucifer lucifer and why was it translated lucifer because that's the term that jerome used when he translated uh, the vulgate he used the term lucifer and there was no uh, no no one knew how to do it better in english so it became lucifer in english too but the poem talks about the fall of the shining one in uh, isaiah and the second most important text very closely related is ezekiel uh, 28 12 to 19 and who is, the, who is the subject here? Who is sub- here it was the shining one, and here the subject is what? The covering cherub. The covering cherub. And covering cherub, it's not just the cherub. It is the covering cherub who is said to be, who is said to set the standard of perfection, who is said to be the measure by which beauty by which intelligence, by which greatness is measured. That's what, what the, the parameters are for the covering cherub. This was the best God could do, as it were. Uh, that's the title, you and, and the story of the fall of the covering cherub. Now, how does the covering cherub come to an end in Ezekiel? And here, Hebrew, that is not not as an ex- Hebrew, but not an exact language like Greek, Greek or German, which is also a, a much more exact language, very specific in nouns and verb forms, and so on now hebrew isn 't like that, but it does do quite well with the resources it has at its disposal because it uses a quite a rare form of the verb uh, in, uh, when it talks about the description, the destruction of the of the uh, covering cherub, uh, <coughs> it uses a form of the verb <coughs> that is more, uh, or let me, uh, let me just read it here. Uh, the text, uh, the translation of this text should be I made fire to come out, maybe, uh, uh, and I'm taking this from the NRSV, by the way, the NRSV just says that. I made fire to come out from where? From within you. From within you. Now, how specific is that? So there is fire. There is destruction from below. There is destruction from within, and and the within here is specified further as something is as a, as a reality coming from within. Which from within where? From within the covering cherub himself. And the two best commentaries I have seen, both of them are Jewish. I love Moshe Greenberg. That's the latest one in the in the word biblical commentary. But it's interesting that ostensibly Christian commentaries now have outsourced some of these commentaries to Jewish writers. And I think they have done well to do that. But uh, S. Fish, I don't know what his first name is, in his very careful commentary, he says that the evil in the midst of Tyre which is the symbol here in, 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 Reve- in Ezekiel 28. The evil in the midst of Tyre will be the flame, which reduces her to a heap of blood or burnt ruins. And Moshe Greenberg says outrightly, fire from your midst signifies evil causing its own, own destruction. I am not reading stuff into these texts. I'm merely reading what the texts are actually saying see some people think that this is a perspective that is born of wishful thinking of some you know wishing to sort of pussyfoot, a pussyfoot around the reality of, of destruction and especially hostile to the notion that God should be doing the destruction but we are just reading the text and trying to find out what the texts are actually saying and the texts are actually saying that the destruction happens on the side of the opposing forces here uh, and Write down, you know, sticking even close to one of the key key texts that delivers this message to us. Now, I want. I have read this one before. We will read it again. Uh, This is uh, destruction in First Enoch. First Enoch uh, is the is the most important non-canonical apocalyptic text. It is a text older than the Book of Revelation, Uh, and. And it is the most prestigious of the apocalyptic texts that did not make it into the Bible. In those days, talking about the eschatological battle, the father will be beaten together with his sons in one place and brothers shall fall together with their friends in death until a stream stream shall flow with their blood. For a man shall not be able to withhold his hands from his sons nor from his sons' sons in order to kill them. Nor is it possible for the sinner to withhold his hands from his honored brother. From dawn until the sun sets, they shall slay each other. The horse shall walk through the blood of sinners up to his chest, and the chariot shall sink down up to its top. You can easily see that this is an image that overlaps with Revelation 14. But what is the, what is the substance of what is depicted here? Same thing at, as in the uh, Gog and Magog battle. It is the destruction within the sides of the opposing, uh, or, or destruction within the ranks of the opposing side. It's clear as can be. Uh, and uh, it's just another element in our text. Now, uh, this one I will skip. This is a perspective from origin in the second, third century. And then let's do it, uh, <coughs> just cut to the chase here and in the last few minutes. I would like to uh, to spell out what happens here in the, in the uh, uh, opo- on uh, on the final eschatological battle. I had meant to uh, to do better than this, but I will do the best I can with uh, with uh, sort of synthetic resources here for uh, for this. Our text in Revelation says that they marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camps of the saints and the holy city, and the beloved city. And uh, let me just say what this means. I had, meant, I had meant to have somebody playing the trumpet in our audience. I, had, I tried to get hold of somebody who could do it, so do it live. To, I would have liked to have a 20 or 30 trumpets, of course. Up they march, guided to their chosen destination by the newly liberated leader, who is the opposing side. Up they march, striding majestic, majestically over the breadth of the earth, until the forces surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Up they march, as numerous as the sands of the sea. Up they march, the body language of the marchers exuding confidence that the city and its inhabitants have no way of escape. Up they march, heading brazenly in the direction of the unnameable Hashmal, of Ezekiel's vision, the fiery center of the divine presence. Up they march, heading witlessly toward the holy mountain of God and the stones of fire, again Ezekiel imagery. Up they march toward an emanation of glory so intense that God in the beginning appointed an an anointed cherub who covers in order to cushion the dazzling impact of the unveiled glory. Up they march, advancing under the spell of the fallen cherub toward the one whose unveiled face no mortal can see and live. At that point, says the Bible. At that point, says the Bible. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? <coughs> Here is the Conclusion I would like to run by in the end. When the voice of the ancient serpent is heard in Genesis, it charges deprivation of freedom as the fundamental characteristic of the divine government. Do you agree with that? That the point of the story in the beginning here is that there is a freedom deficit in the government of God. Here is my proposal uh, from my own work on this. It is the logic of freedom that leads to Satan's release. And it is within the logic of freedom, precisely the value said to be lacking in the divine character, that Satan proceeds to work his own undoing. After the thousand years, he must be released. There is a revelatory necessity for this. And the revelatory necessity for it, I say, I'm suggesting, lies within the storyline, lies deep in the storyline of the cosmic conflict, that the opposing side said that there was a freedom deficit in the character of God. And God proves him to be wrong by his own actions. And if I may say one more thing here, most people when they read the poem in in Isaiah 14, most people when they read it, They think that this is a parody of a of a uh, grief grief poem. This is called these poems are called funeral dirges, funeral dirge. Sort of a so you, you read a poem at somebody else's funeral, and this is a poem written at the funeral of the opponent in the cosmic conflict, the funeral of the shining one but most theologians think that this is a parody of a funeral dirge do you see what what that, it's another genre it's a it's a genre where you use a funeral dirge that is usually something that you write because you feel honestly sad about somebody's death but the parody of that genre means that you don't feel sad at all you're just making fun of this person now i think that is profoundly a profound misreading of it i do not think it is a parody of the funeral dirge it is a funeral dirge a sad poem written in sadness over the fact that the shining one went down you know and down he did go and he comes to an end but it is there is sadness over it in in some ways if you can can get my sort of the drift of of that that uh, reasoning And there is a reason, there could be a reason even deep in the character of God, why he is so reluctant, other than freedom by the way, uh, deep in the character of God, why he is so reluctant to execute the Shining One. So he is leaving it to the Shining One to do it himself. See those, that, that, those sort of perspectives I think we need to pick up uh, here next time and maybe we will do our trumpet sequence I mean the trumpet again with live trumpets who knows <laughs> that, <that's>, uh, <coughs> that was to do to meet a need in my own in myself to, to sort of see it all uh, uh, coming out there they march up there they think they can win they will lose uh, and we will uh, take it from there next time